Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. This episode's speaker is Ryan T. Anderson, founder and editor-in-chief of Public Discourse. Ryan spoke about religious liberty under the Obama administration and how President Trump has the opportunity to change bad policy. This speech was recorded live in February 2017, two weeks after the inauguration at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. So get some jam on your bagel and take a sip of your decaf because you are listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. Throughout the eight years of the President Bush administration, religious liberty hadn't been threatened at the highest level of government. Uh, There weren't uh, uh, crucial Supreme Court cases during the eight years that he was in the White House uh, that pitted the government against an order of nuns. Uh, There wasn't an edict that would go out from the Department of Education and the Department of Justice instructing all schools uh, to change their uh, bathroom and locker room policies. Um, That one of the reasons why this is a topic of conversation today um, is because of the past eight years we saw an unprecedented assault on religious liberty uh, and on basic uh, uh, common sense family values, human values. Uh, And these things often get intertwined. So I'm going to talk about uh, both the religious liberty Uh, challenges from the Obama years, but also some of the underlying policies that created those religious liberty challenges. Uh, And then I'm going to talk about some of the opportunities uh, that a Trump administration has to undo some of the damage uh, that took place um, and to set a precedent to protect uh, the freedom of all Americans going forward. And I use the word opportunities uh, deliberately. I don't think uh, these are guarantees. I think it's going to be important that uh, people within the conservative uh, community continue to insist that these opportunities be taken advantage of and be made realities, um, that this just won't happen automatically. And so um, our role as citizens, as activists, um, is to actually um, do what we can to advocate for good public policy going forward. And I don't think we should um, let up on that. So let me start with a couple of things that took place during the Obama years that gave rise uh, to these challenges on religious liberty. Um, I think first was the needless assault on the religious liberty of uh, private business owners and religious charities uh, under the HHS mandate. Um, And the first, there are actually two HHS mandates that I'm going to discuss. So the first one was known as the contraception and the abortifacient mandate. This is the one that the owners of Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood went up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and won their lawsuit. Uh, They won that 5-4 decision um, authored by Justice Alito uh, back in 2014. Then you had the case last year in which the Little Sisters of the Poor had to go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they had a, um, it's a victory of sorts. They got a unanimous ruling, an 8 nothing ruling, um, instructing the Obama administration to try one more time to find an accommodation, and then instructing uh, the lowest uh, uh, level of the federal courts to rehear the case if the nuns uh, still weren't fully accommodated. Now, what was at stake here? Um, Congress passed on a purely purely partisan basis, uh, purely party vote, Obamacare, without having actually read it. 
uh, part of Obamacare instructed the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, to mandate uh, certain drugs and devices as preventative care. Um, in that list of drugs and devices, there were 20 um, contraceptive devices that were mandated that every employer health care plan would have to cover, four of which had labels from the FDA that said these drugs and devices can cause an early abortion. And so that first lawsuit, it wasn't from Catholics, it was from evangelicals and Mennonites. Uh, the Green family are evangelical Christians, the Hahn family are Mennonite Christians. They said, we don't have objections to contraception, but we do have objections to killing. Uh, and we can't have the federal government telling us that we have to pay for coverage of four FDA-labeled drugs and devices that can kill an unborn child. Uh, and the federal government said, well, no, you're in business. You don't even get to practice religion. Uh, the argument that the um, uh, Obama Department of Justice made was that once you go into business, you no longer have religious freedom rights in this country, that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the First Amendment don't imply in the commercial sphere. Uh, it's a very limited notion of what religion is. It limits religion to worship. And so frequently you heard people in the Obama administration speak not of the free exercise of religion, which is what the Constitution protects, but they spoke of the freedom of worship. Um, Secretary Clinton spoke this way. Secretary Kerry spoke this way. In the international context, this has uh, huge implications for what it means about the freedom of uh, people overseas to uh, engage in evangelism, uh, to uh, engage in spreading their faith in the public square versus just privately practicing their faith at home. Uh, so when you hear this in the international sphere, you should be concerned about what it means for the full public expression of religious faith, especially in religiously oppressive nations. But in the domestic uh, sphere, what this meant was that the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, the Order of Catholic Nuns, when they were inside of their chapel, uh, they were just engaged in worship activities. They were exempt from the HHS mandate. But because they also ran homes for the elderly uh, and for patients who were dying, uh, when they're not suing the Obama administration, what the nuns do is they, they do real death with dignity. Uh, they take care of elderly people and sick people, and they accompany them on the way to death. Because they did that, they said, you don't get an exemption. Uh, you get a phony accommodation. And the Obama administration went through seven different iterations of uh, the accommodation, each time just creating more paperwork, but never actually protecting the consciences of these groups. And that's why you had Wheaton College and the University of Notre Dame and several uh, Catholic dioceses and Catholic charities and an order of nuns all have to uh, sue the Obama administration. So that's one HHS mandate. Let me turn to the second one. A year ago, um, the Department of Health and Human Services reinterpreted the word sex in Obamacare. So 2009, Obamacare is passed. It says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And what they meant by that uh, was that you can't give women less adequate health care than you give men. Uh, the basic idea here was to have a parity between men and women and to make sure that you weren't going to have you know, gold-rated uh, health care plans for males and then a poorly-rated health care plan for women. So then seven years later, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services decides that the word sex now means gender identity. And so they issued um, a regulation saying that all health care plans under Obamacare, including private plans that are regulated by Obamacare, uh, would have to cover sex reassignment therapies. And all relevant physicians would have to perform these therapies. Uh, so what this means is that if you are a, a hormone specialist and you do hormone therapy for medically indicated purposes, you would now have to do it 
uh, for a patient who wanted to transition to the opposite sex. Uh, if you're a surgeon uh, who performs mastectomies or hysterectomies for medically indicated purposes, uh, perhaps as a cancer treatment, you'd now have to do these uh, for sex reassignment. On New Year's Eve, a federal judge in Texas uh, issued a 50-state um, uh, preliminary injunction against this mandate. It was to go into effect uh, on uh, January 1st as new health care plans, the start date uh, changed over, and he put a stop to it uh, pending further uh, litigation, but he put a preliminary injunction that applied to all 50 states. Uh, and then a week later, uh, the ACLU sued a Catholic hospital in New Jersey for declining to do a sex reassignment therapy uh, on a woman who wants to become a man. Uh, and they're doing this at a religious hospital. Um, it strikes me that if you're in New Jersey and you do want to go through a sex reassignment procedure, it's probably a good idea not to start by going to the Catholic hospital. But this is what we saw during the Obama years, is that it wasn't going to be enough that you would have the freedom uh, to engage in abortion or contraception or sex reassignment therapies. You would have to have the government forcing other people to subsidize it, uh, whether it's through health coverage or through the direct uh, performance of these procedures. Um, let me mention two other uh, Obama-era uh, religious liberty challenges. Um, the next one is the underlying policy. So it's not a direct religious liberty challenge, but it's another transgender mandate. So on the same day that the Department of Health and Human Services uh, issued the reinterpretation of the Obamacare sex discrimination statute, the Department of Education and the Department of Justice uh, sent what's called a Dear Colleague letter to every institution of education in the United States that receives federal funding. So that's every public school system, more or less every college with, I think, three exceptions. Um, and what the letter said is that for the purposes of Title IX, this is a 1972 law that Congress passed uh, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex within educational institutions, uh, the Obama administration was now, 44 years later, uh, reinterpreting the word sex to mean gender identity. And so they issued a Dear Colleague letter telling all schools that they would have to open up bathrooms and locker rooms and hotel rooms and dorm rooms and shower facilities and even sports teams uh, based upon the gender identity of the student, not the actual biology of the student. Uh, so this raises a host, a host of concerns for privacy, for safety, for modesty, but also for religious liberty uh, in the sense that a lot of students have religious reasons why they can't see uh, a naked body of the opposite sex or be seen by, uh, when they're naked, uh, someone of the opposite sex. Um, many religious people have concerns about privacy and modesty. Um, and the Obama administration imposed an entirely one-sided uh, mandate on this. It didn't say uh, reasonably accommodate a transgender student, uh, find a single occupancy bathroom or a single occupancy a locker room for them to change. And it said they have to be allowed to use the bathroom and the locker room and the hotel room and the dorm room of their choice. Uh, that corresponds with their gender identity. Um, completely ignoring the concerns of female students in high school who might not want a biologically intact male student showering in their shower facility. Um, so re regardless of what you think about the underlying issue of transgender identities, there were concerns on both sides of this matter, and the Obama administration ignored one and then imposed the other in the most radical of ways possible.
Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. The last um, example I want to mention is the aftermath of the redefinition of marriage. Because here we see problems at both the state level and at the federal level. At the state level, uh, we've seen state governments uh, force Catholic charity adoption agencies to shut down because they wouldn't do same-sex adoptions. Uh, We've seen state governments fine bakers and florists and photographers, um, not because they wouldn't serve gay customers. They were more than happy to do happy birthday cakes and get well soon flower bouquets for their gay customers but simply because they wouldn't do same-sex weddings. Um, Many of these florists and photographers and bakers said, look, we have no problem employing gay people and serving gay people, but we can't cater a gay wedding. Uh, We can't use our God-given artistic gifts and talents to help celebrate what we believe doesn't actually accord uh, with real marriage. So those have all been at the state level. At the federal level, um, we saw that the Solicitor General of the United States during oral arguments at the Supreme Court on the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell, was asked by Alito, what's going to happen to Christian schools? Um, Should the government redefine marriage and these schools continue to define marriage the way they've always defined marriage, the union of a man and a woman? Will they lose their nonprofit tax status? Um, And he mentioned the Bob Jones University case. If you're familiar, in the 70s, the IRS had revoked the nonprofit tax status of Bob Jones, saying that they were a racist institution Um, And they were at the time. They didn't allow interracial dating. So Alito was saying, is that precedent of saying racist schools don't get nonprofit tax status? Are you now going to apply it to Orthodox Jews, to Roman Catholics, to evangelicals, to Latter-day Saints, to Muslims, to very many different theological traditions uh, who believe that we're treated male and female, and that male and female are created for each other? I was in the courtroom that morning, and the response was um, chilling because the Solicitor General said, I don't deny it, Justice Alito, that's going to be an issue. I don't deny it, it's going to be an issue. He repeated himself. What he could have said is, of course not, Justice Alito. Um, We would never treat Orthodox Jews and Roman Catholics and Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints as if they're racists. Um, While we disagree with them about the nature of marriage, we don't think their beliefs are bigoted. We don't think their beliefs just arise from animus. We think they're wrong, uh, but we think they're reasonable. That was an option he could have had. It's an option he did have. It's an option he could have taken, um, which is more or less what we've done in the United States on the pro-life issue. If you think about how have we handled um, abortion in the United States, uh, for the most part, people have said, I disagree with you if they're pro-choice. I disagree with you about abortion, but I'm not going to force you to pay for an abortion. I'm not going to force you to perform an abortion. That consensus is now crumbling. It crumbled right before our eyes as the Democrats changed their party platform in 2016 to now oppose the Hyde Amendment. So think about this. For 40 years, we've had the Hyde Amendment uh, on every budget that's been passed to limit taxpayer funding of abortion through HHS-appropriated funds. And this was a, generally a consensus position. that Women have a right to choose an abortion, but citizens have a right not to have to pay for an abortion. Uh, we've said that pro-life doctors and nurses, they don't have... Um, a duty to perform an abortion. 
now the question is in the aftermath of the judicial redefinition of marriage, what will happen to uh, colleges and universities um, like Wheaton, like Notre Dame, uh, religious schools who continue to believe what they've always believed about marriage? What will happen to an institution like the Leadership Institution uh, if it continues to hold a conservative viewpoint on marriage? Will it lose its nonprofit tax status? At risk here is every uh, nonprofit, whether it's a university or a charity, uh, a public interest organization, would it have to now start paying corporate income taxes on all of the gifts that it receives? Uh, so you can imagine that would take about a third of your budget away, uh, sending it to Uncle Sam. Um, and so all of the liberal groups would continue having their nonprofit tax status and the conservative groups would lose it. What will happen to accreditation? Uh, will you lose your accreditation and no longer be an accredited university uh, because you hold to traditional beliefs about marriage? Which isn't mean to say that funding isn't the only issue. Uh, some people say, well, just don't take government money. There are three, four now, four colleges that don't take government funding. Uh, places like Hillsdale and Grove City and Christendom College. Um, they're all colleges. Uh, the federal government has structured the financing of education, so it's virtually impossible uh, to do higher education without being uh, connected to the federal government. Uh, you can't have science laboratories and do fundamental research without an NSF, uh, NSF grant. Um, so it's very difficult to be a full-blown research university without at some point uh, intersecting with the government. Um, but it's our tax dollars in the first place. So why should our tax dollars be collected from us? We are coercively forced to pay taxes, and then our institutions be ineligible for government funding because our institutions believe what we believe about marriage. So these are just a variety of ways in which we see uh, the potential for uh, religious liberty violations in the aftermath of Obergefell. Uh, none of those have taken place yet at the federal level, um, but the Solicitor General told us that he doesn't deny it. It's going to be an issue. And I imagine that had uh, Secretary Clinton won this past November's election, it would have been an issue much more uh, quickly. So let me pivot now and say a couple of things of uh, what can uh, the Trump administration do to undo some of the damage from the Obama years and to protect religious liberty uh, going forward. And here, uh, there's another silver lining, is that if you um, govern by a pen and a phone, uh, you can ungovern by a pen and a phone. Uh, because you notice that for almost everything I just mentioned, I didn't uh, mention Congress. Because Obama governed uh, without involving the legislative branch of government, uh, Trump can undo a lot of this without going through Congress. Um, the executive orders that Obama issued, the Dear Colleague letters um, that his Department of Justice and Department of Education issued, just the reinterpretation of uh, Section 1557 of Obamacare, uh, the HHS mandate, the transgender mandate, he can now instruct, President Trump can instruct his secretaries of Health and Human Services, Department of Education, and Department of Justice to undo all that. Uh, and they can go through the advance notice and proposal rulemaking. They can go through the proper procedures um, to undo the various burdens uh, that the Obama administration placed on these communities and these beliefs to begin with. Um, on day one, um, Secretary of Education and the future um, uh, uh, Attorney General can issue a letter saying, no, we're going back to the way Title IX had always been interpreted up till a year ago. So that dear colleague letter that was sent to every school in America, Betsy DeVos uh, can say, no, that's not going to be the policy of my administration when I'm Secretary of Education. That's an opportunity. It's not a guarantee. Right? Someone's going to have to make sure 
uh, to put pressure on the administration that this actually uh, takes place. Uh, the same thing is true for the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, Tom Price, uh, when he's confirmed, he can say, we're not going to have an HHS mandate that forces the nuns uh, to provide health care that violates their beliefs. We're not going to interpret sex discrimination to mean health care plans have to pay for sex reassignment therapies and doctors have to perform them. Um, these are all things that can take place at the administrative level. But then it's a ping pong ball. Right? Then it's a good guy comes in, they do something good, a bad guy comes in, they do something bad, and it constantly, every four to eight years, bounces back and forth. So one of the things that the Trump administration should do is actually work with Congress uh, to pass legislation that'll stand the test of time. Um, so one piece of that would be repealing and replacing Obamacare. If there is no Obamacare, there's no HHS mandate. Um, so you get rid of the bad underlying policy, you also solve one of the religious liberty challenges. Um, there's a, a bill in Congress that was introduced uh, last term called the Civil Rights Uniformity Act. Uh, and this is Congress saying that in every piece of civil rights law that we have passed that uses the word sex, we don't mean gender identity. We mean the biological, anatomical, physiological reality of male and female. Um, so Congress can say in Title VII, in Title IX, in every piece of federal civil rights law that we've enacted over the past 50 years, we weren't talking about transgenderism. We were talking about male and female uh, biological categories. This would then prevent the next administration from doing what Obama has just done, because there would be clear congressional legislative intent that this is not what we mean. Um, in an ideal world, this wouldn't be necessary. Uh, you would say, look, Title IX never meant that in the first place, and you'd have judges who would recognize that. Unfortunately, Obama has packed the federal judiciary. Uh, and until Trump has a chance to undo some of those problems, we could lose these cases. So it'll be important that we have legislation. It'll be important that we have good judicial appointments. And it'll be important that we have good administrative leaders. All three branches of the government need to have good policies on these issues. Uh, let me mention another uh, piece of policy that Congress can pass and then uh, Trump could sign. And then I'm going to open it up uh, to your questions. Uh, the First Amendment Defense Act. The First Amendment Defense Act has been introduced um, in Congress last term by um, Representative Labrador in the House and by Senator Mike Lee uh, in the upper chamber. And what this says is that uh, the federal government cannot penalize any individual or institution uh, because they believe marriage is the union of a man and a woman and they act on that belief within their institutions. It lists a couple of provisions uh, specifically, tax status, uh, contracts, grants, accreditation, and licensing. So it lists those five in particular. And it says no organ of the federal government could deny you a nonprofit tax status or revoke your nonprofit tax status because you believe marriage is the union of husband and wife. Uh, they can't deny you a grant or a contract. Uh, they can't revoke your accreditation or deny you a license simply because you believe what you believe about marriage. This is modeled on something known as the Church Amendment. Uh, the Church Amendment was passed uh, in 1973, uh, six months after the Roe v. Wade decision. It's not named for um, stone buildings with stained glass windows and steeples. It's named for the Democratic senator from Idaho, Frank Church. Uh, and so 1973, the Supreme Court in January strikes down all of the pro-life laws in America. And Senator Church says, all right, the court just created a giant win for the pro-choice side of this debate. What are we as Congress doing as a check and a balance on the court 
to protect the rights of pro-life Americans. And so what they said is that, all right, the court said women have a right to choose an abortion. We're saying pro-lifers have a right to choose not to perform an abortion. That's what the First Amendment Defense Act tries to do. It's modeled on that principle. Uh, a year and a half ago, the Supreme Court redefined what marriage is in the United States. Congress now has a chance to say, but civil society, uh, religious organizations, small businesses, charities, schools, they should still have a right to operate according to their belief about marriage. The government shouldn't be imposing an orthodoxy on all of America on this question. Um, so this can now um, move forward in the House and in the Senate, could be passed by both chambers, sent to President Trump's desk. He promised uh, while he was campaigning for president that should the bill reach his desk, he would sign it into law. Trump can also issue executive orders accomplishing this. Um, but again, to make those permanent, you need legislation. Um, so what I would like to see, what I would suggest is that um, on day one, you undo uh, the bad stuff that Obama has done. So once these secretaries are confirmed, they can get to work within their agencies undoing the mischief that the Obama administration caused. Uh, President Trump can issue executive orders saying that for the federal government, the word sex means sex, not gender identity, that the federal government won't be penalizing people based upon their belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. And then Congress can make those uh, executive order protections permanent by passing the Civil Rights Uniformity Act and the First Amendment Defense Act. Um, those are the opportunities. None of those are guarantees. And so it's going to uh, take the work of an organization like Leadership Institute to actually put the pressure uh, on the people in power to actually do the will of the people. Uh, the people who supported Donald Trump uh, by wide, wide margins support uh, these policies that I discussed, and now it's time for their elected representatives uh, to do the work of getting this done. Uh, so with that, I'm going to stop. It looks like we have about 10 minutes uh, for questions, and um, we might have time for answers as well. And, uh, I'll, I'll do what I can. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.